Welcome everyone. We're on the way to up here. Expecting a good turnout for the Radhastami. And some devotees will be arriving this evening, more tomorrow and more on Saturday. So you're here till through Saturday, good part of Saturday. What about yourself? Early Sunday, okay. Good. So, I'm going to ask for questions tonight. Tomorrow morning, there's a Mongol Arctic at 5, and there'll be a reading relative to the occasion. Perhaps a few minutes of discussion, and then we'll get together at 10 in the morning informally, outside somewhere in the shade, and discuss uh, relevant topics entertain questions and so forth. And then Arctic again in the evening and then we'll sit around the fire tomorrow night and discuss further and use our new pizza oven. <laughs> so, And then the Saturday morning is the... Well, we're celebrating the full day on the official day in one sense is tomorrow, but most of the devotees will be coming on Saturday, so I'll give a formal lecture on, on the topic of... Um, uh, on the subject of Vrata, and um, it'll be followed by Artik and, and the feast, and that's our program. So, for tonight, any questions? Yes? I was looking in the dictionary, thinking about this concept of free will. It gave a couple definitions. The first one it gave was free will is a type of will that is unfettered or independent of anything else. And so after I read that, I thought, therefore, there is no such thing as free will, at least in this material world. Do you want me to comment on that? Yes. <coughs> yes. Uh, uh, will is one thing. Free will is another thing. Um, <clears throat> from the perspective of Gaudiya Vedanta, and this would be true also of some other forms of Vaishnava Vedanta, uh, Ramanuja in particular, and I can't say I've thoroughly investigated the other um, schools of Vaishnava Vedanta with regard to the issue of free will, but with regard to the Gaudiyas and and the followers of Ramanuja as well, um, and I would pretty much assume the other Vaishnava Sampradayas. Um, the jiva has will. Now that said, it's probably good to stick with the Gaudiya Sampradaya, our tradition. We include Ramanuja concurs, but there's a difference in, for example, the Madhva Sampradaya and the Balava Sampradaya with retarded different types of jivas and so forth. And, um, and the question of will there is... is it clouds the issue. Anyway, so um, the um, um, we can say there's a difference between will and free will. Without will, then we are no more than matter, and we don't really matter in any absolute uh, or overarching sense. And if we don't have will, which means the ability to choose... Hmm? then the scriptures which advise us to do certain things 
and now to do other things would have no meaning. Hmm? And they do have meaning, um, and so we do have will, is the point. Now that said, uh, we're not entirely free in asserting our will in as much as we may assert our will, but other factors are um, in play, and if they do not cooperate, then our will will not be realized or fulfilled. So in one sense you could say free will is the, is, is the will to do whatever you want, whenever you want it, which is what we all want to do. <laughs> and which is the position of Krishna, satya sankalpa, whatever he wills happens, right? Hmm. Um, now that's not the case for us in conditioned life. And so what is the situation then with regard to will in conditioned life? It is something like, and Baladeva Jibhushan gives this example in his Govinda Basha, his commentary on Vedanta Sutra, that if a farmer wants to grow wheat, he or she has to go and till the soil and plant the seeds. But if it does not rain, there will be no wheat. So the rain, the will, the will expressed in this example is the farmer's effort. So will is somewhat related to effort. It certainly uh, appears so or feels so in the case of sadhana. We say our practice is, 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 proceeds uh, by mercy and effort. So in the stage of practice, it seems like there's more effort than there is mercy, but of course it's only mercy that we get to make the effort in the, in the, in the first place. So, um, so we have to exercise our will, and there are, there are choices that arise. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so... In some senses, I'm equating uh, will with with effort. So the effort of the farmer to plant the seeds until the soil is insufficient. He or she, the farmer, the family needs as well rain. And in this example, the rain is is the sanction, if you will, of the Godhead. Hmm? And so his sanction may come or may not come, or his sanction is there in a sense, by way, with regard to our material activities, by way of deferring to his maya shakti. Maya shakti means, the, in one sense, the influence of illusion that we are under. It means the environment that we misidentify with ourselves and or with, as something we can do whatever we want with. And so we, we take from the environment and then there are repercussions. Uh, you, 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 you put a quarter in the machine, something's going to come out. Hmm? In this case, you don't know what it might be, <laughs> necessarily. Or you can read the scriptures and get some idea. <laughs> but uh, maybe you should put two quarters instead of one. Or whatever. But, but uh, the point is that, that Krishna has to, has to have some relationship with his Maya Shakti. We know he has a relationship with his Sarup Shakti. We're celebrating that in this festival personified as that shakti is by Radha. But his relationship with Radha and his sarup shakti is different than his relationship with the maya shakti, which is described as bina prakriti, a separated energy, um, um, keeping uh, under the influence of which 
he never comes. He does come under the influence of Radha. Because that Shakti is his own Shakti, his Swarup Shakti. It's inherent in him and it manifests outside of him for his own purposes to enjoy and experience himself. But the Maya Shakti is of a different nature and Krishna has, Vishnu has no experience of the influence of Maya Shakti. And that's good because if he did, then he wouldn't be fit to be a savior because the experience of Maya Shakti is a result of illusion, uh, the, the, the suffering, if you will, or the enjoyment derived from material energy. It's a result of being plugged into it, being attached, and so on and so forth. And so he's the savior, and one, one of the reasons that he is capable, competent to be so is because he's not influenced by the Maya Shakti. That also, as an aside, and we've talked about this before, in one sense puts him at a disadvantage in terms of being empathetic. Because if you don't have the same experience, it's hard to be empathetic. Nonetheless, God knows the mechanism of the suffering of the world. He teaches about how to remedy it. It's not exactly what Krishna in the Braj is doing, but in the Bhagavad Gita he's doing that and in other forms and so forth. And in one sense... Vishnu manifests the world out of compassion and to give the opportunity to overcome material suffering. But this is kind of like indirectly why he manifests the world, indirectly why Krishna comes to the world. More so, the, the fact is that there are always sadhakas, hmm? just like there are always persons under the influence of karma, there are always those under, under the influence of bhakti, and he comes directly for them and indirectly as a byproduct others have benefited, and more directly they're benefited or dealt with compassionately through his devotees who he shows direct compassion to. So he shows compassion to his devotees, devotees show compassion to others, and they have experience of suffering, so they have a capacity to be more empathetic. But my point is, this is just an aside, that he's not under the influence of the material nature, and therefore he can be the Savior. If he was, he couldn't be the Savior. Hmm? So while it first sounds like, uh-oh, well, he can't be fully empathetic... Uh, well, he's got to be the savior. That's better, better. And his empathy does play out. His compassion does play out through the agency of his devotees, or his kripa shakti. His kripa means mercy. So, vanchakalpa trubhyascha kripa sindhu kripa sindhu. They're the ocean of of compassion. So, he's not influenced by material nature, but he has a relationship with material nature. He can't just ignore her. Altogether, it is one of his shaktis. Hmm? He can't have a relationship like we're having, which is problematic, which would be problematic, as I say, for us if he did. Hmm? Then he couldn't be the solution to our to our problem. Hmm? Hmm? But he, he can't just ignore material nature altogether. I mean, it's it's again, it's one of his shaktis. It's like his subconscious or the shadow that he that he's the, the the light of and so forth. So what is his relationship with the Maya Shakti, Vishnu, God? He defers to her with regard to the repercussions or reactions that the Jivas are due in relation to their actions. So if we take from the world then we owe so he defers to her. In other words, there's justice. Hmm? Justice. 
we, we sometimes call for mercy, but there cannot be mercy unless there's justice because mercy is an overriding of justice. And through his devotees, he asserts that mercy and overrides the justice. Otherwise, in a general sense, he defers to Maya Shakti. So we're talking about the will of the jiva. The jiva wants to do something, and then will that happen or not? There are other factors. So the overarching factor is the sanction of God, but in a way he sanctions by deferring to material nature, like, I'm going to do whatever you want, you know. <laughs> whatever you think is best. i got other things to do. Hmm? What should I do with this guy? Whatever you think is best, you know. Uh, something like that. So, so, <laughs> so, our will is not entirely free. We can't just will whatever we want and, 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 and it will happen. This is the basic Vedic idea with regard to our conditioned life. Now, that said, we are a unit of, of will. We have the, we, we're not in, insentient and inert. We're, we're, we're alive, sentient, we have will, we are, according to the Gita, driving the world. Apareya mitastanyam prakritim vidime param jiva bhuta mahabaho yaidam dharyate jagat. Yaidam dharyate jagat. The world is supported by us. Sometimes I say matter matters because it matters to us. We, we give meaning to it and so forth. So we're driving the world in that sense. We turn it on. Hmm? He turns it on, and we continue the, the motion, so to speak, by being plugged in with desires and so forth. And material nature is reciprocating and kind of locked into this situation. The more we're locked in to our identification with matter, the more our, our particular activities in matter are reinforced by the reactions. So, you know, the more you do something, the more it's habit-forming. Hmm? And after you do something long enough, it becomes second nature. You just do it. They say with regard to posture, you should practice it. I should, if you do something for 30 days, it'll stay. <laughs> At least it'll stay in your head. I should do that. <laughs> so anyway, you know what I mean? If you, it, uh, by repetition, then we become habituated. So we act in a certain way. Material nature responds in a certain way. And as we proceed down that path, our choices are limited in that we have a tendency, we develop a tendency to respond in a particular way to circumstances. And so in a sense, our will is kind of fading to, to the background and we're kind of like on, on automatic. It doesn't disappear. We have will. And we can. And there can be... Um, uh, uh, it can be intervention in our life, in, in, even materially speaking. Someone can be habituated alcoholic and so forth, and and someone could come into their life and give them an opportunity to make a change, and so on and so forth. And so, so the will is there; it doesn't go away. But the more we exercise our will in relation to material nature, the more we almost become like more like matter. Hmm? We don't matter that much anymore. Um, now, the opposite is true with regard to the influence of bhakti and the srup shakti, which is entirely free hmm? and independent. The srup shakti is so free and independent that wherever she goes, Krishna has to follow. 
Hmm. With regard to material nature, he's at a distance. Do whatever you think is best. Uh, you know, I know you've got a thankless task. Uh, don't get too close. <laughs> Something like, like that. But with regard to the Sarup Shakti, so you know, we say that Krishna is one and different from his Shaktis. Well, he's more different than he is one with his Maya Shakti. And he's more one with his Sarup Shakti than he is different. We're kind of in between. Hmm. Uh, he, I think he's we're more he's we're more like him than not, but we can act in ways that are very much unlike him hmm? um, by our uh, exercise of our will and the influence of material nature. So, his swarup shakti hmm, is so uh, much like him. He's independent. That she's independent. She's free, but so free hmm, that she has an, a free hand. Really, a free hand. Whatever she does, wherever she goes, he has to go. So the force of karma is in the world, and the force of bhakti is always in the world. Hmm? The agency for the distribution of that bhakti are the devotees, the Vaishnavas, and wherever, through their hands and from their hearts, bhakti goes, Krishna has to go there. He has no choice in the matter. Hmm? So that's a very powerful shakti. So, when we come under the influence of that sarup shakti, then what happens? Why does that sarup shakti have the license, the freedom that she has? Because she is living only, existing only for the purpose of satisfying Krishna. Has no other purpose, no other thought whatsoever. Hmm? Sometimes depicted like like a shadow that follows him around everywhere, anticipates hmm, his desire and manifests the, within the context of the Srup Shakti with whatever's necessary to do that. It's said that about the Srup Shakti in, in second canto of Bhagavatam that Krishna does not know the measure of the influence of his, of his yoga maya, of his Srup Shakti. He doesn't know it. Hmm? Later in the maybe 82nd or 87th chapter of the 10th canto, I've mentioned this before, it's worth repeating, the Shrutis are in a conversation that the personified Upanishads with Krishna and they glorify him. Hmm? And Krishna says, actually, you're the Shrutis, you're the Veda, you know everything. And they say, how can we know everything? Hmm? Um, uh, you're God and, and, and even you don't know everything. You don't know the, the, the limits of your own knowledge. And Sarup Shakti Bhakti is synonymous with the highest knowledge. So Krishna replies, What? So you think I'm, so I'm not omniscient then? Maybe I'm not God. And they say, No, no. You don't know the limits of your own power because your power has no limits. So how can you know the limits? Very clever. But what it's saying is something very interesting that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, but the nature of his reality and his shakti is that it's, it's constantly doing newer and newer things within the context of just pleasing him. That's how, for example, a jiva comes from this world, gets bhakti, goes to that world, and, be, and enters there like Gopu Kumar as a coward boy. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's supposed to have no beginning. How can there be beginnings in the spiritual world? Hmm? Right? 
Hmm? And so some people think, well, he's always there. Just you just asleep and then woke up. <laughs> no, it's not like that. But the nature of the Sarup Shakti is that it's always doing newer and newer things for the pleasure of Krishna. So it, within the within the context of the Sarup Shakti's influence of Sakirasa or Madhurya Rasa. Hmm? It's doing. It's always doing wonderful things for the pleasure of Krishna. So here's another thing, another. It's the norm there. In other words, there will be new things that happen. Hmm? Radha's preem is full, but it's ever increasing. Oh, you know, you can't fit that between between ears. In ordinary schools of Vedanta, the idea is stop trying to become and be what you are. Be what you are. Stop trying to become. Good, good advice. But in bhakti, there's also a becoming. Hmm? We can be what we are, tatasta jiva. But if we have the influence of the, the shakti of bhakti, we can be all that we could possibly be. And there's an eternal becoming. Krishna is eternally becoming. That's the whole idea of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's exploring himself and finding if there's something to to know that he doesn't know about himself, that Radha knows what to do, how to solve the problem, so so on and so forth. So it's it's love is dynamic. It's not a static ultimate reality. So it's fresh, new, ever-expanding. Hmm? He doesn't know its limits because it has no, no limits, hmm? and so forth. So when we have the influence of bhakti without choosing it, Sometimes we say, well, love is voluntary, so we have to be able to make a choice. But actually, <laughs> Krishna makes, Bhakti makes the choice, right? Of her own fancy and goes to you and to our heart. And then we get this impression of Bhakti. Sometimes we call it Bhakti Sukriti, hmm? unknowingly. And then more opportunity comes, and then with some knowledge, and then faith comes and so forth. And then the choosing on our part comes. Hmm? In other words, you're affected by bhakti, now you can choose to take advantage of by seeking association with, uh, with the sadhus, understanding, and the effort, the will, hmm, is exercised. Now, we're exercising it in relation to a potency, a shakti of Bhagavan that's illuminating, sheds light on who we are and what all our potential is unlike the maya shakti hmm? right obscuring the srup shakti is is illuminating so what happens of course is the more we come under the influence of bhakti the more our desires are to please krishna hmm? right when your desires are only to please krishna hmm? for example in liberated life, in, in, in the Leela. There's two ways to look at the Leela. From the Bade point of view or the Abade point of view. From the non-difference point of view, Abade, which is the boring way of looking at it, Krishna is, there's only Krishna. Krishna and his Shaktis, but Shaktis are one with him. So, so he's kind of playing himself out his desires through his shaktis. From the, from the, 
from the bade point of view, from the difference point of view, the jivas are liberated and they're, first of all, there's different types of liberation. So those who choose to pursue the bhakti path, having been influenced by it and choose to accept it and pursue it, they're choosing to have a, have a relationship with Krishna, a form in leela and so forth, rather than to attain a formless uh, type of, of mukti. So they're making this choice from the beginning. And, it, and, and the, the choice is refined by sambandha gyan and association and so forth and, and, and cultured and so forth. And in liberated life, in the leela, from the bade point of view, difference, there's a difference between the jiva and, and Bhagawan. Hmm? Then the, all these jivas, gopis, gopas, and so forth, they all have desires. They have all kinds of desires. As I say, some cowards like mangoes, some like bananas. They're not all just automatons, right? They have desires. But the nature of Madhurya rasa, the nature of Vatsalya rasa, the nature of Sakya rasa is that it's entirely pleasing to Krishna, however it plays itself out. The coward boys, for example, in Dhenukasur Lila, in the 10th chapter, 10th canto, 15th chapter, they say, man, smell those fruits, those tall fruits. The room, they're so ripe, they're hanging on the tree, and like, we can't get them. Hmm? Because Dana Kasur is there, and he's, he's not letting anybody come there and eat them. We want to taste them. Hey, Balaram, what a, well, you're a big guy, you know. You're the older brother, but we haven't seen you do anything. Hmm? Rama, Rama, Mahabaho, they, they push on his ego. He hasn't killed any demons yet. Hmm? Krishna's encountered very, you say you're the big brother, but <laughs> how big are you? So they, they, this way, they, they pinch his, his ego, hmm? and they want to taste the fruits. Hmm? Look carefully at the language. Of course, they want to taste. They they want to taste them in the context of prem, and you can say they want to taste them for because they want Krishna to taste them. But their own tasting is giving pleasure to Krishna. Hmm? Madhurya rasa gives pleasure to Krishna. Sakya rasa gives pleasure to Krishna. And these rasas, these bhavas, are full. Realities. I mean, they're not. They're, so, whatever is done in the context of that rasa is pleasing to Krishna. So, they are such a sankalpam, like Krishna. So, they have free will at that point, in a sense, because they're completely under the influence of the srup shakti. And whatever the srup shakti wants happens because whatever she wants is really what Krishna wants that she's anticipating and fulfilling and so forth. So, there is a sense of fullest sense of free will for the jiva is there in, in among the muktas. Hmm? And there, the fact that you have a unit of will is fully, uh, that you are a unit of will, that you, you, you have, uh, you're an agent of action, you're, you have a causal influence, you make things happen, is more you know, apparent. Hmm? Still, of course, as the overarching look at it from the uh, the obeyed point of view, Krishna's will is required. And, uh, but if we understand the nature of the Srupa Shakti, then we can understand, as I said, whatever she wants happens because it's only for his pleasure. So, so free will is a, is a gnarly kind of a topic. Obviously, Western philosophy has uh, debated it over the centuries. Um, uh, Indian philosophy doesn't seem to have debated it as 
as well and kind of had a more common sense approach to it because after all, in Indian philosophy, for the most part, you have this idea that there's consciousness and then there's matter. Hmm? They're one and they're both shaktis of Bhagavan, but they're different. One's inert, the other is not, and then there are different descriptions of what the nature of consciousness is according to different schools of Vedanta. But um, given that difference between matter and consciousness, then there's this place for will, and of course the idea is consciousness touches the subtle body, and then then the buddhi and and ahankar and so forth are activated, and then the, the will is going on there. But but it's only because of the touch of consciousness. So consciousness has, in that sense, will. Maybe Advaita Vedanta doesn't look at it entirely like that, but but you have this, anyway, distinction between matter and and, and consciousness. So in the Western world, you have this, this philosophical kind of problem, mind-brain problem. Is there a mind? Is there, we can't see the mind. Is there a mind or is it just a brain and so forth? But it's kind of, in all the schools of Vaishnava thought, I mean, there's... Yoga, in Yoga Siddhanta as well. There's a subtle matter, and then there's gross matter, and then there's consciousness. So it's kind of accepted from the beginning, and then there are ex- the experiencers of it who go within and describe the subtle matter, and, and so on and so forth. It's not something that's readily accepted any more than ghosts are, you know, in, in, in the modern world. But, but you know, the attempt to try to make even mind what to speak of consciousness proper into matter and reduce it to that is, as I many times say, is extremely problematic for the scientific community. And as the days go on more and more and more, you will find, and we are finding, people in the scientific community, they move towards, well, we can't understand consciousness. Let's just go on. We don't worry about it. It's there. Or... Now they're coming to a pan-psychic perspective as they find even, even, even insects have egos, they realize, a sense of identity. This would have been a laughing stock just a decade ago if you had been in an academic community and said, I think that you know, that means there's the consciousness in insects. Thought, You're totally nuts. Some people still do, but now there's evidence to support even insects have egos. So this is a pan-psychic, it would be called, perspective. Consciousness is everywhere. It's, it's a property. Then they'll, 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 they'll give a materialistic perspective on panpsychism. But, but anyway, the Vedic school been around for a long time. It's still around, the Vedanta school. It's not going away. It has influence on the hearts and minds of educated people in the West and so forth. And I believe the world will come in, 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 in the direction of, of, of concluding that consciousness can't be understood. Consciousness is, is some kind of panpsychic reality. Can't be understood means it can't be understood in, in terms of physical laws. Um, and uh, it will open the door for, uh, as it already has to some extent, for schools of Vedanta. What we, what we need is realized people in Vedanta hmm, who have demonstrated, you know, by their example, the truths um, about subtle matter, the truths about consciousness, uh, school in it and experiences. But at, at any rate, um, the problem, if you will, of free will hasn't been a problem hmm, in Eastern philosophy in the same way it has been 
in Western philosophy. And one of the reasons, because when I speak of Eastern philosophy, I, I'm speaking of Vedanta. And it's wedded to revelation. At a certain point in Western civilization, philosophy became unhinged from the Eastern, the Western Christian revelation. Um, it used to be a handmaiden philosophy of theology. Indeed, you could call theology, you know, theistic philosophy or something like that. But then they unhinged from the Bible and all that. They just, you know, freedom to think however you want. And they thought themselves into some pretty, pretty um, unfriendly um, and boring uh, places, lifeless places, <laughs> if you will. Um, so. Yeah, it hasn't been as as big of a topic, but that's our um, explanation. But so, so you have this. There's some measure of determinism. Things are determined. You can say, for example, we say, "Not a blade of grass moves without the will of God." Okay, but that shouldn't be misunderstood. That okay, whatever happens, God God wanted it to happen. It means it can't happen if God doesn't sanction it. But it doesn't mean you don't have a role to play in it. You wanted it. He gave it to you. He said to material nature, we'll do whatever you want. So, okay, you got it. Now, you can't blame God. Hmm? And you can't, well, it's his will. He did it. No, no. <laughs> so, so there's a determinism. In other words, it can only happen by God's will, God's omniscient, you can say. Um, but there's also free will, and that's just kind of a, you call it a compatibilist Free will and determinism are compatible. Something, something like that. Um, and with regard to omniscience, I've commented on that recently too. That, that you know, well, we did this even today in our discussion. But um, you can just like I've given an example. You take a barometer. A barometer can tell you what the weather will be hmm, tomorrow, hmm, but it doesn't make it doesn't cause it to be like that. Krishna may know what's going to happen, but he's not causing it all to happen in every sense. We have a role to play in it. And that will is dynamic. So which way it will go, you can look at the barometer, but our will has a real role in... uh, and what will uh, be determined. Now there's some thought within scientific community, quantum mechanics, that the world matters, just these potentialities, hmm? questions that arise. And so some, somebody has to be in there, make make a decision. So at some, some level, and then the potentialities happen or don't. And it's a complex subject, and I'm not, not uh, well-schooled in it, in science, but... That help? Yeah, can I go for it? Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes it's said that the soul is like in sleeping condition. So is that sort of just a metaphor or something? Because, you know, somebody's sleeping, he doesn't really have much to do with. And then he's also described as actually having nothing to do. He has no part of matter. He's changeless. He's, you know, this. Then we hear that the mind is the cause of bondage or the cause of liberation. Mm-hmm. And that kind of also seems to separate itself from the soul. Mm-hmm. Proper. So then when we start to talk about causes, 
um, <laughs> you know, where is the soul involved in this cause and effect? For, for example, we, we say, right, that uh, um, the mind is the, gets different kinds of impressions. Yeah. Right? So you see some person, you either hate that person or you like that person right away. Why? Because the impression is already there from previous life. Well, that, that person that looked like that punched me in the previous life. Or the person like that gave me some money in the previous life. Something like that. So it's just, it appears that it's just the mind with its impressions, seeing objects, and then making its so-called choice, a soul. Like. Yeah. So what's the position of the soul? So where's the soul in that? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, this mind is the subtle, is subtle matter, psychic matter. Right, so it's uh, the nature of, sat- of of subtle matter is such that it can reflect consciousness. Hmm? So, so what's happening is there's this quasi-subjective reality of subtle matter hmm? that is is the way it is. All experiences are going on in the mind, right? The pains, pleasures, happiness—it's all going on in the mind, and, and it's it's like that. Because of the touch of consciousness, hmm? so because of the touch of consciousness, it's turned on, so to speak, and it takes on quasi, kind of the quasi-consciousness you know, state, hmm? and then gross matter, from the Vedic point of view, evolves out of that. Hmm? And so, really, in one sense, what's happening is the subtle matter is moving, and like you said, and then there's the gross matter, and this, where's the soul in all this? Well, it turned it on uh, to begin with. It can be lost in the shuffle, so to speak, and it, it, it's described as a witness. Of course, I've given the example that sometimes things only happen because somebody's watching. Hmm? So we can't underestimate the power of, of witness, but soul is not just a witness. That's the school of yoga, yoga sutra. Hmm? In our school of Vedanta, your soul is much more robust and it has, it is an an agent of action. So, somewhere in there, <laughs> it's animating the psychic matter, and it's going on and so forth. And in one sense, like what I said earlier, its ability to intervene and have a role, a causal role, is. It's kind of limited. It's kind of been pushed to the background by, by choices that it's made that are reinforced, and that some scars uh, are making make make the same choice, and so forth. And the, the soul seems less active, in a sense. But it doesn't. But it, but it. But the only reason that the qualitative experiences are going on and the choices are being made is because of the presence of the soul. Without that, psychic matter can't can't do all that. Hmm? So it has it, it's kind of like this power, and it's, it's kind of turned its power over, if you will, to the subtle matter, and, and then it's, it, it's going on that. Now we come in with the sadhus and shastra, and we explain this, and so forth, and try to extract... The, we're giving an option that the material nature is not giving. Bhakti is giving an option that the material nature is not giving. Bhakti is coming into our life from the very beginning. Hmm. And so, the, 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 that's why we say, sadhu sangha, it's just changed the course of your life. Now a choice has come in. Hmm. 
we say now, and we and, and that for that matter, the soul is using this mind. It's a tool. Hmm? So it's either being used in in the ordinary case. It's animated it and then turned itself over to that, and it's functioning kind of by p- p- proxy. Hmm? You know, and it, 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 it's, it's it's sitting there, but but it's not because hmm? its power is what's driving the whole thing. Now, you bring in 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 bhakti into its life, and then then it, then it can use the mind. Mind, the Gita says, is the enemy of the jiva and the friend of the as well. So, how does the mind become the friend? How does that tool? Hmm? That is maybe may appear to be working against us, become something that works for us. Well, that's what yoga is about, and, and that requires intervention of the scripture, these type of spiritual disciplines, insights, and so on and so forth. So this is coming from outside the influence of material nature, and it's it's talking directly to the self, and now the now will is. Turning this this tool of the mind and functioning through the tool of the mind in such a way that it, that, it, that it works to its advantage. And what happens, of course, in due course, is this sarup shakti takes over the mind entirely. That's what bhav is about. It it rides on the mind, takes over the mind. And so different devotees will, will, for example, preach and act in different ways according to the influence of the Sarup Shakti. Hmm? You can't always argue with how they present things or do things because at a certain time, as far as a, 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 a uh, Ghosti Anandi who's doing preaching and outreach, hmm? they preach in a certain way at a certain time, this influence of the Sarup Shakti is taken over his or her subtle body, riding on that and causing it to function in a certain way for the purposes of Krishna and so forth. Hmm? Then and along with that, of course, the, the relationship with Krishna is developing and the mind is a tool for that as well. So, so it's, a, it's a very, uh, what can you say, it's, it's, it, the connection between mind and body is even less subtle than the connection between atma and mind. Hmm? It's very subtle. It's a categorically different thing, consciousness, from matter. But this psychic matter has this capacity to, to absorb it and, and take its influence and then run with it. Hmm? Something like that, like you plugged it in or something and and you're, you know, there it goes, you know, a b- drone or something. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, and so and 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 because the connection is the connection between mind and the soul lies in the power and of the of the atma of consciousness of what it is. We can't. You want to. We want to explain it in physical terms, or in just like what is the connection? How does the mind, you know, move the body? You can't measure. They want to know by 
by physical terms because they want the mind to be physical. You say, well, it's not physical, so some other way. <laughs> you have to understand the laws of the mind to, to, to figure that out. Okay, but now we're going to another level. What is the nature of consciousness? What is its, and the example only, we can only go by the examples given in the scripture to try to give some idea. And the example, the primary example probably given in the scripture is a magnet. A magnet is over here. Magnetic filings are over here. And it causes them, you can make a move. There's no touching. And if I have magnetic filings on the table and I have a positive magnet, I can go, the filings can move, they never touch. Hmm. Now, these kind of analogies break down, obviously, because you could say, well, in that case, there's this magnetic force, and we know there's a magnetic force. We can measure it. Well, you can know that there's a spiritual force, too, and yoga is the means to measure it and, and come in touch with it and see what it is. And, uh, and that's, a, that's an art and a science unto, unto itself. Hmm. But that doesn't mean it can be explained in physical terms or in the same in terms of how laws of mind if we understood them we could understand how it moves matter it's just within its power hmm? Hmm. that help <laughs> and uh, and because it's so subtle you know you, you you have these schools like Patanjali's yoga sutras and they conclude that the purush that the, the the atma is just a witness it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any action doesn't do anything. Pardon me? The soul, when it's in an impersonal state, is an immoral, just a witness. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah, yeah. So just with that. Depends, that depends, of course. It, it, the soul, the only way that he experiences anything here is through this subtle body, right? Right. So now if you separate the soul from the subtle body and he becomes a little impersonalist, how does he. He doesn't even have any senses. Does he have a mind? How does he experience even Brahman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't experience it the way the Maya bodies describe it, according to us, because according to the Maya bodies, there is no jiva. We don't agree with that. But there is something called Brahma Sayuja, merging in Brahman. And there are different things that have been said about it. First of all, Bhadli Bidibhusan, his explanation of Sayuja is very different. His explanation of Sayuja is that Sayuja is the basis of all types of liberation because it means a oneness. So it pervades all types of liberation because it's a sense of oneness with the Absolute. Hmm? Now in Chaitanya Charitamrita you have this other more radical idea that there's, there's Brahman, it's outside of Vaikuntha, it's this effulgence of God, the halo, and it's nirvishesh, there's no differentiation there. And, and that's where the demons who Krishna kills in his leela go. They think, well, they got Brahman, they attained Brahman. Hmm? Well, uh, Sananda Goswami says in Brihad Bhagavatamrita that it's true, for the, for the most part, the jivas remain as individual monads of consciousness in liberation. But as an exception at times, Krishna does allow them to enter into nirvana 
this would be Brahma Nirvana, and become extinguished, he says. Sometimes we call we call we call uh, we call Brahman as uh, spiritual suicide. I always thought of it in terms of a potential. Your potential is lost, but um, there are more radical opinions <laughs> given by by some acharyas. So you don't want the Brahma Sahaja. After all, I mean, you have to look at it like from the from the point of view of the of Gaudi Vedanta. There, there are these people who are absorbed in Krishna with, with enmity. We find, for example, in the Leela, the stories are there. So they enter Brahman. And then what is the position of those who want liberation in Brahman but have no, no, no care for, for, for Krishna, for example, for Vishnu? Hmm? He says that, that even if they want to merge into Brahman, they can't without bhakti making it possible some sattviki form of bhakti, which is not sattvaguna, but she takes on the sattvaguna and gives them liberation. But what, but what they want, what do they want? They, they really, what they want really is to end suffering. That's all they really want. That's the whole motivation in Gyanmarg. The whole motivation in Gyanmarg is, look, I'm attached, it's causing suffering, I want to get free from the suffering. So therefore the measure of their happiness is really only the end of suffering. Hmm? So there, you know, some people may talk about it a little differently, but it's not really at all. Kaivalyam uh, Nadakayate. How you like that one? Vishvana Chakravitakra says, we'd rather go to hell than enter into Brahman. Hmm? <laughs> That's pretty, pretty extreme um, uh, position. Now there might be might be those who charge to say with it, the jiva never you know loses its position, but it enters into Brahman, and it's it's has three aspects of itself that don't have the opportunity to function: kartritva, gnatritva, bhuktritva. It means kartritva means action, so will to do to do anything. Hmm? Nyatritva means to apprehend. What's to apprehend? To capture and to grasp. Nothing to do, nothing to grasp. There's no environment there. If you're going to do something, you have to have an environment to do it in. Material nature provides an environment. Sarup Shakti Bhakti provides an environment, but Brahman doesn't. So, what are you going to. How can that aspect of yourself in potential, Kartritva, to be a doer, it has no place to play itself out. So that can't be experienced. And you can't experience Bhoktritva. There's nothing to experience. Hmm? It, it's, it, it's, 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 it's described as, as, what is that very counterintuitive statement I sometimes use to characterize it? Um, un, unconscious awareness? <laughs> You know, like doesn't make any sense or something like that. Um, um, I forget the term, but the the example the, uh, to compare it is like having coming under the influence of an, a um, when they put you to sleep, anesthesia, deep sleep. Deep sleep means no dream, no function in the psychic level. No function on the physical level, you're unaware of. 
it's huh, there's no pain there. There's no suffering there. You've ended all. That's what Buddha wants to do, right? The whole focus of the Buddha is, look, let's keep it simple. The world's about suffering, okay? The reason we suffer is Trishna, thirst for things. So, give up the thirst for things. And here's how to do it. There's a noble path. There's eight ways to act ethically on the noble path, and then you can become free from thirsting for things and no, no desire. Well, end suffering. So the whole focus is to end suffering. So that's not real, you know, it's kind of like I give the example of zero in relation to negative numbers. seems positive, but, but then again, you might think, wait a minute, <laughs> I'd rather have something, even if it's, if it's a little, if it's not great, but it's a little something <laughs> every now and then, you know. <laughs> you, have a, you, have a, you have a kind of a good argument, like, I, 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 you, know, you say love is an illusion, well, I'd rather have a little of it anyway. Last for a little while, you know, <laughs> then none. So bhakti comes to the rescue there. It's, it's the, whole, the whole idea of material life, you can have it on the other side in relation to Krishna, everything. What, that's why... Antanunat have loved it all. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's why in the Bhagavatam, when Krishna saved Nanda Maharaj from the clutches of Varuna, hmm? remember when he was taken into the, into, the, into, the, into the river and so forth, then he came out and Nanda Maharaj says, well, it was far out. Varuna was offering, Varuna was offering prayers to him and Balaram. So they said, well, let's ask Krishna. He seems to have some powers by the grace of Narayan. Let's ask him what it will be in our next life. And he shows them. It'll be like this. Same. Hmm? He showed them also there? He showed them Goloka. Passed what through Brahmananda. What, what is the meaning of Brahmananda then? <laughs> well, Sanatana Goswami says it means end of suffering. <laughs> That's what it means. Hmm. Yeah. Are you conscious that you're not suffering? It's... it's um, it's uh, you're you're kind of uh, con- oh, here's my phrase contentless consciousness. You see, when you think of consciousness, you think of content. What are you conscious of? Contentless consciousness. You tell me what it is. The example is deep sleep. Hmm? They say, of course, you woke up from deep sleep and you said, "Ah, oh, I was feeling really good. I rested." So you, they say you can't remember something that you didn't experience, so you were experiencing the end of suffering. But that means to say that you still exist. So something like that, you could say, is, is Brahman. Something like susupti, which is the long sleep inside of Vishnu before the world starts again, that doesn't start again. Something like that. But it's just a rest. This is something where Sri Prabhupada says that but they're kind of packed in and they're really not very comfortable. <laughs> well, Prabhupada was very much against, you know, the the idea, so he would make up reasons to, you know, make it, make it, make it sound worse than it is. But, I mean, the literal is pretty bad, too. But, I mean, to say that he went there and we were dissatisfied and came back, that doesn't happen. No, because there's no book, there's, there is no experience of suffering or, or, or joy. In a Goloka, there's suffering and there's joy, both. Suffering enhances the joy.
people say, well, if it was, it was happy, well, they're suffering there too. Separation is there. But just like here, here, the happiness and the sadness, if you properly play them out, and there, the happiness and the stress are both forms of bliss. All right, let me stop there. Sri Sri Gaurana Tanandaki Jai.